0: I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com for updates on podcast guests and lots of live events. Today's episode has been sponsored by the Iceland Readers' Retreat, which is happening April 29th to March 3rd in Iceland. Who doesn't want to go to Iceland? While you're there, you'll get small group lectures and talks by renowned authors, learning about the rich literary heritage of this Nordic book-loving nation— Adam Gopnik is the special guest this year, and he will be doing a small seminar on memoir. Between all these intimate book discussions, you get to have literary-themed tours of the countryside, hear from other Icelandic writers, and discover some really cool artifacts in Reykjavik's museums. This sounds so fun, and I'm hoping I can somehow manage to get there. Uh, But you should check it out at IcelandReadersRetreat.com. That's IcelandReadersRetreat.com. Dot .com the price is $1600 but that includes so much everything for basically 4 days of your life. So check it out at the Iceland Readers Retreat. Thank you so much. Emily Nemens is the debut author of The Cactus League, a novel. She's the editor of The Paris Review and was previously the co-editor of The Southern Review. An alumnus of the Kerouac Project Writing Residency Program in Orlando, Florida, her work has been published in Esquire, N Plus One, the Gettysburg Review, Hobart, and other outlets. Originally from Seattle, Emily attended Brown University and received her MFA from Louisiana State University. She's also an illustrator. Her illustrations have been published in The New Yorker and on Tumblr, where she has a following for her portraits of women in Congress. She currently lives in New York. Welcome, Emily. Thanks for coming out. Moms don't have time to read books. Thanks for having me. Of course. We were just talking, we had coffee, and Emily mentioned this book to me. It felt like a hundred years ago, and now here it is, finally coming out. So excited. Yeah. The Cactus League. Next week. Next week. So, The Cactus League. Can you please tell listeners what this book is about?
1: Yeah, it's a novel about spring training baseball, but it's sort of the least baseball, baseball book. It's really about the community that gathers in this small suburb of Phoenix, Every spring with all sorts of different hopes and aspirations for the season.
0: And what made you write this story? Why, why these characters? Why this book?
1: Well, I'm a big baseball fan. I have been since I was a little girl. And my dad and I, I grew up in Seattle. And my dad and I would need to get out of Seattle in March. If you can imagine all the bad stereotypes of like a gray, cold place that's true from March 1st to 31st or 30th. <laughs> How many days are there in 30 March? 30
0: days. That's my April, June, November. I don't, I think it's 31.
1: Okay. Anyway, we would go, not every year, but often enough that this place sort of got logged. In my mind is a really interesting sort of counterpoint to what I knew in Seattle. That counterpoint still was really interesting and compelling when I moved to the East Coast and kept going back to Arizona and seeing how this sort of boomtown really boomed. Phoenix, of course, grew so much, but there's also the history of the place. Scottsdale, where the book is set, is really interesting. Frank Lloyd Wright went out there to build his winter compound. And when he built there, he, he picked the side of a mountain where there was absolutely, you couldn't see any power lines from his property. And he was like, perfect, if I've arrived. And you go there now and you just see the entire city sprawled out in front of you. And sort of in the near distance from Frank Lloyd Wright and in the same community is this brand new stadium. So I thought, huh, that's an interesting thing to think about. Like, What's happening in this place that has changed so much? that there's this major league team coming and all of their fans and all of the, the adventures and opportunities that come along with the team arriving in this place that was supposed to be so calm and quiet.
0: Yeah, forget it. (laughs) Sorry, (laughs) sorry, Phoenix. I want to talk about you and your dad. So Tammy, one of the characters in your book, and you divide the book up into sections from different points of view, and Tammy is one point of view. And in her section, she was saying, her daddy would, and I'm quoting, take her and her brothers to the minor league stadium in Lubbock a few times a season, spoil them sick with soda and peanuts. Tammy learned how to keep score at age seven. By eight, she could spot a strong arm the way an architect senses a perfect sight, the way a divorcee tastes a want, On the tongue. That was such a great passage. (laughs) So, is that like you? Were you that old when you started going to games with your dad?
1: I started going to games even younger. I'm the younger of two girls, and my sister just was not interested in baseball at all. My dad grew up walking distance from Yankee Stadium, and I think he just had a real itch to get back into baseball when he moved out to Seattle. He moved there like a year or two before the Mariners showed up. And so, yeah, basically, as soon as I was old enough to sit through a game, we started going. And it was a great time to be a little kid excited about baseball because Ken Griffey Jr. Mm -hmm. had just arrived in Seattle. And, you know, he was this teenage phenom. He went straight from high school. I just remember, I don't know how many years I had the Sports Illustrated for Kids cover with Ken Griffey Jr. blowing this great big bubblegum bubble Oh, and he was just the cat's meow for me. And that plus just like it was a chance during, you know, our day and our week that I got to spend time with my dad alone was really nice. I didn't have the eye for, for pitches that, <laughs> that Tammy had, but otherwise pretty similar.
0: I feel like baseball, when I was growing up, was more, maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like it was a much bigger deal in the popular culture. Like my brother was a huge Mets fan. So the 1986 Mets, they were like the heroes of our childhood. Oh, of course. We had like, let's go Mets go videos. And I know like all players from then. And I couldn't tell you probably a single Mets player right now. (laughs)
1: Right. Well, I mean, I think it's interesting. And that was one of the things I was excited about writing about baseball in 20. I started the book in 2011, but like for this last decade, is baseball has been sort of on a decline in the popular yeah. culture, and and what does that mean? What are we still hanging on to in terms of why is baseball important? What happens when it sort of fades into the limelight? You know, like what are new opportunities there?
0: And you started it in 2011. Yeah. Now it's 2020. So what happened between then and now? Tell me about the process of writing this book.
1: (laughs) Well, so I had been living in New York and working and writing and editing and mostly working, though. And I just really wanted to write a book and commit to literature. So I went back to grad school after spending my 20s working in the city. And I went to Louisiana State University in Baton Rouge. And SEC football is a really big deal. I mean, they're national yeah. champions now, so that's, of course, exciting. Congratulations. Thank you. But I showed up and I thought, whoa, this is a really fascinating and sort of beguiling cultural phenomenon. Just 200,000 people on campus. I mean, this is a campus of 30,000 kids and, you know, just this huge influx of people coming and, I wanted to unpack that to understand it, to enjoy it. I mean, I tailgated too, but um <laughs> understand what was going on, why all these different people had sort of hooked into professional sport or non in this case, you know, amateur but very top level amateur sport, and think about what that means to the whole community. so I spent a while reading about football and tailgating. I got into the press corps and sort of thinking about what was specific to Louisiana and the SEC, and what about this was just American sports culture, and sort of where it started. I was working on it pretty seriously through my MFA, but I stopped my MFA to become the editor of the Southern Review. And then I finished up my grad credits sort of in fits and starts, but finally graduated in 2015 with a version, an early version of this book, it was my senior or my graduating thesis. But at that point, it was stories. It was standalone stories that sort of all jumbled together in, in Scottsdale. They all were happening at the same time with the same team. But I just hadn't figured out how to have them speak to one another and work together. And really acknowledge that they're all happening during a season. Like, I think that's one of the exciting things about sports literature is that there is a clock. There is a timeline. There's a ticking time bomb. Of whether it's you know bottom of the ninth or the end of the season, or th- there is sort of an implicit fire there, and I wanted to make the most of that, so I I sort of I took a lot of time to figure out how to do it, but took those characters and those stories. I you know I wanted to maintain the reading experience of this really satisfying arc, the you know the the lead up and the the conflict and resolution or not resolution, but the the sort of the cadence of the story while also assembling them in a way that there's forward motion and a narrative across all mine.
0: Where did you like to write? Were you are you a coffee shop type of person? Oh, Do no. you write at home? Or no, I
1: write at home or at residencies. You know, I would when I was in Louisiana, I figured out a four ten so I could edit the magazine in four long days and then have three days to write. So I had a home office and Wait, and what is a four ten? Like, I would go to the Southern Review at 7.30 in the morning and work for, like, a 10 to 11-hour day so that when I'd wake up on Friday morning, I'd done, you know, a whole week's work of work in four days, and then I had a day to write.
0: Oh, I see, 4.10, so 40 hours yeah. in four days. Yeah. Got it. Okay, <laughs> with Fridays off yeah. to write. Yeah, yeah Got yeah, yeah. it. Okay, that's such a cool way to say that. Now I know.
1: And so that worked for a long time when I was in Louisiana, and then I would go to sort of... I'm kind of a snake with my writing where I either don't have an idea or don't have the time to write, you know, for, for some spell. And then I'll, whether it's Friday and Saturday or, you know, after a month, I'll sit down and have a huge session. I did a lot of writing at this residency in Florida called the Hermitage Artist Retreat, which was really great. It's like these tiny cabins on the West Coast, um, not too far from Sarasota. And like, it's just, you look out the window, there's a sand dune and then there's The water. But I need quiet. I need music without lyrics. I listen to a lot of Philip Glass and then I realize like as the music is swelling, I'm writing faster and leaning (laughs) forward. Yeah.
0: That's awesome. So it must be like the best feeling to have this off your plate now after so many years. Or are you sad that you're not tinkering with it anymore? Not sad.
1: The last edit. So so I figured out sort of how to build the nine stories into this continuous narrative, and it felt so good. I mean, at that point, I was like, this is the book. I can't believe I thought it was done when it was a story collection. This is the book. But the last edit was acknowledging that I'd figured out how they all slot together, but there was still, like, a lot of sort of spare bits from when each was... A standalone thing. Mm -hmm. So I cut 25,000 words line by line. Oh, Like, I mean, (laughs) one or two scenes came out entirely, but otherwise I was just thinking about, like, what had been told about this character in chapter one that no longer needs to happen in chapter three, what, like, details of backstory feel really pressing and burning and what can be left on the cutting room floor. And so... That just felt like training for a marathon or something. I mean, it was really, that edit was hard and really satisfying. And when it was done, I was just so delighted. I bet that's a lot of work. Oh my yeah. Gosh. Yeah. And I mean, it's still, it's not a short book, it's almost 300 pages, but like this is the length that was supposed to be. This is the shape it was meant to be all along. So in that way, I'm just delighted. Um, <laughs> but I, I mean, I miss it. I've been you know, tinkering on it for so
0: long. <laughs> <laughs> there was a passage that you wrote that I just wanted to read. I thought it was great. You said, in a lot of ways, baseball players are like other men, but the difference separating ball players from everyone else is that they care about something tremendously. It's thrilling, and Tammy feeds off it. Most people will never touch that kind of drive. Most people, whether they're living in small towns or big cities or sprawl, spend their lives dealing with crying babies and stupid jobs, whatever life throws at them. Baseball players, they do the throwing.
1: Yeah. That was so cool. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's a little cynical of me, but, you know, I think for me that was really thinking about realizing and recognizing ambition and, like, when we all sort of let it go at different stages in our life, right? You know, so many people have, like, when they're a little girl, I want to be a writer, I want to be a baseball player, I want to be a lawyer. And then life gets complicated, and you still have a good life, but you're not hanging on to that that real dream from childhood and to be a professional athlete, you do have to hang on to that and just be so singularly focused on that opportunity. And there's just, you know, I think there's a lot of ways to have a satisfying life, but with professional athletes, there's a drive there and a willingness to see one's vision through that I just it, I feel like it sort of falls away as we get through college, you know, a whole cast of athletes mm-hmm. that are collegiate athletes go find new careers when, you know, you yep. hit your 30s, like running. It's, is different. Man standing. Yeah. it's, it's last like last
0: Yeah, it's like a, the marathon of life. Yeah. I feel like it's like Goldie Hawn in Wildcast. Did you ever see that movie no. in the 80s? I'm like embarrassed. It was one of my favorite movies. But she's a female football coach. Oh, my God. How did I miss this? It's so good. I Go watch it. I, I made spent- Kyle watch it because <laughs> you missed like all the 80s movies because he's too young. Anyway, so she's a female football coach. And when she gets with this team in the inner city, whatever, they like are, have no respect for her. And she's like... Yeah, watch me! I'm gonna run and I'm gonna beat all of you. And so they have right. this scene in the pouring rain where they're all like going around and around the track, and then it starts raining. And then it's the nighttime. Anyway, she wins the scene, but she's like mm-hmm. the last woman standing in this yeah. like victorious moment. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like that's what you're saying about these athletes, right? It's like yeah. all through everybody starts out on the track together, and then one by one, everybody right gives up. Yes, that's it's exactly like Goldie Hawn. Huh? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> just to take your you know literary novel and and pair it with, you know, mass market.
1: Well, I mean, a lot of the book is about sort of pop culture and celebrity culture. You know, it's about feasts of athleticism, but there's only a few innings of baseball in the book. I yeah. think it's really how these men, and not just, you know, the athletes on the field, but all the people sort of wear the mantle of expectation and, and what happens, you know, when you go out to a restaurant mm-hmm. and everyone knows you and has this vision of what you're supposed to be like and and what does it mean when you're, you know, not gonna be able to perform at that level anymore. And just sort of the psychology and the the fallout beyond the performance.
0: Did you have the pleasure of
1: interviewing a lot of professional athletes for research or just um, imagining or anything? I it was a lot of imagining. I read a lot of autobiographies and oral histories You know, particularly in the contemporary moment with just the culture around sports, athletes are really good at sort of protecting their public personas for all the reasons that, you know, I look at in the book. But there's, you know, like with outlets like The Athletic where it's so, you know, it's their voice, but it's also like a pretty controlled voice that, you know, one, I was shy Mm -hmm. (laughs) about going to athletes and two, I just thought that, There would be more opportunities to imagine and explore if I had a little bit of distance.
0: And tell me a little, you have a lot of architecture references in here. Sure. Are you just interested in it? There was a lot of Frank Lloyd Wright and Taliesin and references to other architects.
1: There's this great book that came out last year. Too late to help me with writing the book, but like reading it, I was so affirmed. Paul Goldberger, Mm -hmm, the architecture critic, wrote a book on baseball stadiums. And he talked about in the intro, like, oh, baseball is not the American metaphor, but baseball stadiums are. I think there's just something so interesting about monumental architecture as this gathering place, you know, it's. It's an oasis in the city. It's a place where more people can gather and look at one another than anywhere else in the world, you know, or in in the cityscape. There's so many possibilities for this physical man-made creation. And, yes, I was really interested in the stadium. But, you know, if I have a stadium, how does that interact with other pieces of architecture in the community? And, of course, I thought it was like a really interesting counterpoint to have you know, sort of the 2011 idea of monumental architecture as juxtaposed to Frank Lloyd Wright's idea of a monument, mm-hmm. you know, two generations earlier. And there's such different buildings, there's such different values. And what does it say sort of about contemporary culture that we've gone to these, you know, casinos with strobe lights and or spotlights, you know, pointing up into the sky and these big stadiums rather than this monument that almost disappears into the mountains. Mm-hmm. So pretty. Yeah, and then because this is a transient community of athletes coming in, seasonal workers arriving, retirees, people having, sort of restarting their lives after divorces, it felt necessary to talk about domestic architecture, too.
0: Eleven.
1: So lots of houses.
0: So can I skip over now to your other life as editor of the Paris Review? Sure. You were handpicked from among, I'm sure, a zillion candidates to mm-hmm. come to New York and be the editor. What did that feel like? I know you'd already been the editor of the Southern Review and everything, but yeah. were you really, I mean, tell me about that moment in your life and sort of the decision to leave behind what you were doing and
1: come up here. And- yeah, I mean, you can say handpicked. I raised my hand. I mean, I applied for the job. You know, I love the Literary Quarterly as a format. It's just such an opportunity as an editor to support writers you admire sort of, you know, people pick up the Paris Review because they know the magazine, not because they know the writers inside necessarily. And that's such a great way to share exciting new writing. Without having, you know, the writer to have need name recognition or anything else, and and just also like the reading experience of putting together essentially what you know it's two hundred pages or two hundred fifty pages, so it feels like an anthology. If this is the most exciting literature right now, I think that experience of moving between authors and thinking about what they do to one another and how they play together is such an exciting reading experience, and unlike anything else. So I I knew I wanted to keep working in literary magazines, but I sort of hit the ceiling in Louisiana in terms of opportunities for growth. So I was looking around. There's only a few. I mean, there's probably like a dozen big big little (laughs) literary magazines left in terms of places that could support a woman who wants to be a full-time editor. And so I had a sense of the landscape and I just, I wasn't expecting the job at the Parish Review to come up so quickly. But when I did, I thought, I want that. So it was great. It was, I mean, it was hard to get it. Yeah, you know? I bet. <laughs> but it was great. And I had lived in New York in my 20s, but like in a very scrappy hipster girl living in Brooklyn way. So to come back, you know, a decade later to this big job was like a very sort of weird and wonderful time warp almost. You know, to come back to a city you know and, and be like I knew where things were in my favorite restaurants and some of the things were wonderful and the same as ever. Some some places you turn a corner and there's a whole new skyscraper there. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, a new cultural institution or so that was really it's been fun to sort of get to know the city again that way.
0: So neat. Yeah. Since you've been there, what are you like most proud of having accomplished? I know you've made so many changes and yeah. the podcast and all these other events and launch part. I mean, you've done a lot of stuff. Yeah. I mean, are the awards that's won since you've been there.
1: Yeah. Thank you. I mean, putting together the quarterly is still central and the most exciting part for me. I think just finding fiction that is amazing stories or pieces, you know, forthcoming novels that I feel like we can excerpt, but particularly stories that knock it out of the park. That part's really exciting. You know, a thing that I'd never worked on, but was a real joy to take over were the interviews, the writers Mm -hmm. that work interviews. These are sort of the interviews of record for most writers, and it's not Not to sound too self-important about it, but, you know, these are retrospective, career-spanning interviews that the author gets very involved in writing and sort of perfecting the voice. So, you know, George Saunders, Ben Nugent, and I worked on George's interview for nine months. At one point, it was 40,000 words. We got it down to 9,000 words. George added back another (laughs) 6,000. So, you know, but those conversations and trying to make this document that once is at once a conversation, but it's also really a taste statement and an explanation of how the writer's mind works. It's just a really exciting thing. So the quarterly is great. We have a podcast, and that was so much fun to put together. I really love that we have this digital presence when we've been able to figure out how to be a legacy print magazine with growing readership. Our, Our print circ is higher than ever. But, you know, be relevant and nimble enough to also exist online. So that's been fun. And, you know, the parties, the events, we're trying to do more out in the world, more public events in New York and and around the country, really, just so there's more access points to the magazine. Because I think, you know, people are reading, people are looking at their phones, people are online so much that you no, know, we're not an events organization. We're a magazine. Of course, yeah. But, but there's a lot of community building that happens when you get together. Can I ask a really stupid question? Yeah.
0: So the Paris Review, the Southern Review, like what does a review magazine
1: mean? Yeah, yeah. No, that's a great question. It's not written in stone anywhere. But these reviews, like it started sort of early in the 20th century as a way of assembling a lot of content. So the editors are more about picking and selecting and Anthologizing contemporary writing from that moment. And it's a review of a survey of what's happening in, in, you know, in our case, American Letters at the time, as opposed to a magazine editor who's really assigning things. And, you know, there's a lot more sort of regular features in terms of, you know, front of the book mm-hmm. pieces. So, yeah, it's, it's a, I mean, if you were to look at a magazine der- versus a review, sometimes they might look the same, but reviews typically are a bit bigger. You know, ours have, both the Southern Review and the Parish Review have fiction, poetry, visual arts. Like I said, the Parish Review has this interview series that's been going on for 66 years, 67 years now. Yeah. And, and I think also reviews, this is the thing that I'm really proud of, because they're assembled you know they're bigger publications, and they're assembled you know quarterly people keep them you know they're mm. they're not they're not quite books, but you know I love walking into a friend's house or a stranger's house is even better and seeing that they have you know a couple feet of parish reviews on their bookshelf because this is something that isn't so timely it's not i mean it's relevant of course it has some it's saying something about the contemporary moment, but it's also a document that is full of literature that they want to keep. love it. Yeah. So what's coming next for you now? I know you're already so busy, and you have this lunch and everything. Yeah, well, I'm I'm going around quite a bit with the book, which will be really fun. I'm going around with the magazine as well. There's this big conference. I don't know if you've heard of AWP. I think, yeah. The I don't know much about it. The Association of yeah. Writers and Writing Programs, and that's in San Antonio, Texas. So I'm going to that. You know, I really am eager to start writing the next thing, which will probably be some stories, my favorite. And yeah, I, I think, you know, I was always a slow writer. If you couldn't tell, this one took nine years. So I'm not rushing anywhere, but I'm really excited to have the book out in the world and sort of also put it away and think about what can come next. I feel like in the spring you
0: need to have like when the Mariners do the Mariners play? This is so, I, this Oh, I'm going. My lack of knowledge. Mariners must play the Mets or the Yankees at some point no? They do. So you have to have like a big you have to invite everyone you know. Oh, like get a whole section. Yeah. You should get a whole section and make it like your day and like Give
1: out Cactus League
0: t shirts, or I don't know, something, sell the
1: book, like make it a whole. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I'm going to Arizona in March as part of the tour. There's a big book festival in Tucson, and I'm excited for the book festival, but like I'm even more excited to go sit in a couple of stadiums and just be like, oh the Cactus League is in the (laughs) Cactus League. Here we are. Well, if you do the New York thing, let me know. I will. Absolutely. Yeah, I whenever the Mariners come to Yankee Stadium, I go to one, sometimes three games. Um, I mean it's a bit of a schlep to get up there, but it's always worth it. (laughs) Do you have any advice for aspiring authors? Oh, just keep going. I mean like I said, I thought this book was done in 2015 and I look back at those drafts and I'm really proud of that work, but I also think that it really had to go back into the Tumblr and, you know, be worked over several more times before it was the book that I wanted it to be. And I, I think that it's okay to get to the end and say, I need to do it again or, or try some more and just be more rigorous with yourself. It's hard to and that patience didn't come naturally to me, but I'm really glad that I had to go around and around with the book. Because it when it finally did stop, it's it's in the right spot. That's
0: great. Well congratulations on it. So exciting. Thank you. And can't wait to see what, what comes next in your career. <laughs> Sivy, thanks for having me. You've been listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books with Zibby Owens. Please make sure to sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com to get more updates about episodes like these and also lots of live events. Thanks so much today's episode has been sponsored by the Iceland Readers Retreat. Don't forget to check it out April 29th to May 3rd, 2020, IcelandReadersRetreat.com. You can follow me on Instagram at momsdon'thavetimetoreadbooks. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com.